This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, January 24th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, beloved local dies in Ophir Avalanche. County shuffles housing priorities. Telluride faces probation from FEMA flood insurance program. And a mountain weather forecast. Ofer lost a beloved member of its community in an avalanche this week. Peter Harrelson passed away after getting caught in an avalanche near the Banker Slide Path in Waterfall Canyon near Ofer on Monday night. He was 67 years old. San Miguel County Sheriff Bill Masters says dispatch received a call from Harrelson's neighbor on Monday evening. Who noticed that his house was dark, and I believe she knew that... uh, he was going skiing that day, and so became alarmed. His car was there. Masters says Harrelson's friend skied into the area, knowing where he might be. Of course, it's dark, uh, and uh, they weren't able to locate him. The, um, they, they saw some evidence that he'd been in the area because he'd taken a chainsaw with him to cut down some uh, obstructions and trees and stuff that, that were in the way of uh, some of the ski runs or ski trails up there. San Miguel County search and rescue were soon brought into the area, but due to the darkness and other individuals in the backcountry, Masters says they were unable to complete the mission on Monday night. We did send a drone up uh, with a FLIR uh, system on it so that it can see in the dark, basically. And the, um, we were unable to look in, but we could see evidence of uh, an avalanche in the area. According to the Colorado Avalanche Information Center, the avalanche occurred on the northwest aspect of the mountain, below treeline. The slide likely carried Harrelson 200 to 300 feet before stopping. On Tuesday morning, Helitrax brought a search and rescue team into the area. First responders found a snow pit where it appeared someone had been buried. It looked like somebody had dug themselves out from that pit and then a series of foot tracks. One, one series of foot tracks uh, going downhill for about 400 feet. Rescuers followed the tracks and found Harrelson's body under a grouping of trees. Masters notes there was trauma from the slide, but they have not confirmed cause of death. Masters shares his gratitude for search and rescue's work, adding his deep condolences for Harrelson's family and friends. According to the CAIC, the slide was the first avalanche death in Colorado this season. Harrelson is survived by his brothers, Mike, John, and Austin. High in the southeast corner of San Miguel County, just below Trout Lake on Highway 145, is a gravel pit, the Pathfinder Gravel Pit, which could become the county's next affordable housing project. While a high-elevation industrial site may be a surprising choice for the location of a new development, County Manager Mike Bordonia says the site nevertheless had come to the forefront. Because it seemed like it held the greatest capacity for the largest number of uh, deed-restricted homes that the county might uh, be interested in developing. The county already owns the land, and as gravel at the site dwindles, it could become an ideal launch pad for a little neighborhood of local workers. The county is working with Jim Keo of Keo Studio Works on the initial massing and layout for the site. 
And Keogh came before the county commissioners last week with an update. Recently, engineers completed a survey of the property and, says Keogh, they concluded that the, the site is buildable, <laughs> but there's a little more research to do in, 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 in how uh, legal wise water is, is going to be generated both well and through potentially San Bernardo. If water at Pathfinder is one lingering question, there are others. A third party utility owns a gas pipeline which passes under the site, creating uncertainty about possible building locations. Additionally, one of the potential building sites at Pathfinder was close to a bank of land, which surveyors found was unstable and has a history of sliding. So, says Keo, We pulled that site at the moment out of the consideration, and if the other two sites were uh, developed, there could be some remediation measures to mitigate that loose hillside. All in all, the surveying efforts suggest Pathfinder could support three to four different housing clusters of varying densities, sizes, and construction costs, with some clusters creating as many as 40 units and others aiming for a couple dozen. All the configurations are quite preliminary. No firm goal on the number of units in bedrooms exists. But commissioners were heartened by the results of the survey. Bordonia points out the county is not looking at Pathfinder alone. Two other potential housing sites have caught their attention. Um, one is at the Sheriff's Annex in Ilium, and that would be specifically for on-call housing, which is a continued and increasing need that our Sheriff's Office has, um, and an expense because we're paying, currently renting two different units uh, up in the town of Mountain Village to house our on-call responders. Likewise, um, looking at the Deep Creek shop at our Rodenbridge uh, area. These Down Valley locations are being envisioned as short-term bunk housing for sheriff's deputies, first responders, and other county workers, says Bordonia. These people that are not just on call, but are working <laughs> and needing to respond in emergency situations, in my opinion, should have priority in this location. Uh, and then if there's additional units left over, we know that there's no shortage of interest. The Ilium location in particular is next to the county jail, making a neighborhood with families, pets, and the whole shebang a non-starter. A build-out at the Deep Creek location could potentially hold 18 or so permanent units. But given the proximity of the site to the highway and the county's road and bridge shop, Keogh admits the placement of the housing would have to be strategic. If this went into design, you know, one of the design considerations would be designing the buildings to mitigate the sound from the highway and the activity from the road and bridge component. Keogh adds the Pathfinder location had been the county's number one priority, but they've looked closer at the Ilium in Deep Creek locations. And those became a higher priority because they're closer to town and they're close to facilities that have services. The commissioners agree and they directed Keogh and staff to begin survey work and studies on both Down Valley locations with the hopes of fast-tracking some units while water and other questions at Pathfinder get sorted out. The town of Telluride may soon be placed on probation from the Federal Emergency Management Agency. 
FEMA's National Flood Insurance Program. Probation starts uh, March, March 9th, 2024. Um, and at that point in time, uh, policyholders will see a $50 probation surcharge um, on um, their policy. That's Matt Buddy with the Flood Plan Management and Insurance Branch of FEMA. If we go through the probation period and, and we go to um, a suspension, um, at that point in time, anyone living in the town um, would not be able to renew an existing flood insurance policy um, or purchase a new policy. Telluride Town Manager Scott Robson doesn't want to see that happen. We feel really strongly Telluride um, can and should uh, remain within that, and we're going to fight hard to make sure we are. But we're working, uh, I would say, very closely now with FEMA officials on, on how to find that middle ground interpretation, if you will. The FEMA National Flood Insurance Program was created in 1968. According to Buddy, it has two main goals. The first is to um, create kind of a comprehensive um, flood risk reduction program or, or flood mitigation program. The second goal is to provide property owners or renters the opportunity to buy flood insurance. Because flooding is the number one hazard we face. It's the most costly, it's the most frequent, uh, and, and most severe uh, natural disaster we face. So uh, basically the federal government stepped in and said we need to create a program um, where people can buy insurance to protect themselves and their property. To provide the insurance, local municipalities sign up for the program. Those towns or governments are charged with enforcing land use, floodplain regulations, building codes and the like to a level stipulated by FEMA. In return, homeowners and renters are able to buy flood insurance from the program. Currently, Telluride is not living up to FEMA's standards, specifically in the Cornette Creek area. One of the most important things that can be done to reduce or mitigate risk is to elevate um, the lowest floor of, of structures, and as, as well as elevating utilities, um, you know, furnaces, hot water heaters, things like that. Um, and, and probably one of the, the biggest things that, that we can do based on the flood risk that has been identified on Cornette Creek is to make sure that structures um, have their lowest floor properly elevated. But Robson believes FEMA's standards are too stringent for the area. On those particular lots, um, interpreting it the way FEMA interprets, our, our own adopted code um, uh, would, in many cases, put first floors 18 feet above the uh, ground, for example. It would make a uh, number of lots unbuildable that really are buildable. Robson says the town believes its code is up to par when it comes to flood mitigation. We've believed through multiple town managers, mayors, councils, and, and, and uh, building department staff that this is the appropriate, safe, and, and uh, follows our own code that's been adopted for a long time. So um, we think this is a really good area to, to be pragmatic, uh, to, be, to find some middle grounds, if, if you will, and, um, and uh, you know, find some exemptions, frankly, to that very small zone so that the rest of the community remains in this uh, National Flood Insurance Program. And, and we're going to work hard to make sure we do. Buddy says at the end of it all, he hopes Telluride as a community has more awareness of the local flood risk. I think flood risk is one of those um, underappreciated risks because it doesn't happen every day. You know, we see the river or the creek or, you know, the, you know, whatever. Uh, and, and it's it's a it's an amenity. Right. But um, they can very quickly 
uh, turn and um, become disasters. So certainly uh, Telluride has flooded in the past. Uh, it's going to flood again in the future. Um, but there are things that we can do um, both as government as well as individual property owners to, to make sure that um, the next time it does happen, uh, that it's that it's not as bad, uh, that we are more resilient, that we recover quicker, um, and that we have a, a faster uh, recovery experience. Town of Telluride and FEMA officials are currently working together to help bring Telluride back into compliance with the National Flood Insurance Program. If Telluride does not come into compliance, the probation period will begin on March 9th. Shine the trumpet and saxophone, tune up the bass, dust off the drums. The 2024 Telluride Jazz Festival will be back again this summer. On Wednesday, the festival announced its lineup. Headlining this year will be Rejuvenation 50, celebration of the meters, featuring Dumpsta Funk and special guests George Porter Jr., Leo Nocentelli, and Cyril Neville. Other headliners include Christian McBride and Anjali Kidjo. The festival will also feature Antibalas, Marco Benevento, Say She She, Cool Cool Cool, Takuya Kuroda, New Breed Brass Band, Sex Mob, Karina Reichman, Ghost Funk Orchestra, and the Telluride Student All-Star Jazz Ensemble. The 2024 Jazz Festival will also feature a Lavalanche tribute to Mike Enriquez. In addition to music on the main stage, there will be the quintessential second-line parade, Jazz on Main, featuring jazz acts in free performances at Main Street locations and free performances at the Society Stage in Elks Park. The 2024 Jazz Festival will take place in Town Park August 9th through 11th, 2024. Radon is a colorless, odorless gas. It has no taste and triggers no immediate reaction. But it is radioactive, highly toxic, and a leading cause of lung cancer in Colorado, with roughly 500 deaths a year attributed to radon exposure. While you may be unable to detect it, a simple test will do the job, and Governor Jared Polis has declared January Radon Action Month. So, what better time to test your home for radon than now? San Miguel County's Public Health Director Grace Franklin reports any home can be affected by elevated levels of radon, and she encourages county residents to sign up for a free test kit from the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, or borrow a testing device from the County Public Health Office in Telluride. For more information, visit cdphe.colorado.gov. A proposed ballot measure to create constitutional protections for abortion access could go before voters in November. Proposition 89 would amend the state constitution to prohibit state and local governments from infringing on the right to an abortion. Dr. Rebecca Cohen is an OBGYN in Denver. At the measure's campaign launch on Monday, she said Colorado needs to protect itself from the whims of Congress. National politicians in D.C. are looking every day to limit abortion care. And so that may mean that if we don't put the protections in place, 
that people may not be able to get the care that they need. Proponents now have to collect enough signatures to qualify for November's ballot. A coalition of Colorado reproductive rights groups called Coloradans for Protecting Reproductive Freedom is backing the measure. State lawmakers are trying to reduce suicide rates by helping more Coloradans understand how to access prevention resources. KOTO's Lucas Brady-Woods reports they want to require employers to post suicide prevention information at workplaces. Colorado has the sixth highest suicide rate in the country. The Colorado Health Institute found that men between the ages of 25 and 64 are especially at risk, partly due to stigma around mental health issues. Bill sponsor Representative Stephanie V. Hill hopes having visible suicide prevention resources gets more people to ask for help, whether for themselves or someone else at risk. We all have a role that we can play in keeping those around us safe, and so we should all be equipped with the skills and knowledge to act and to be confident that we can be effective when we do. The bill would charge the state's Office of Suicide Prevention with distributing informational posters to employers. The materials would include ways for someone at risk of suicide to safely and voluntarily store their firearms. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods at the State Capitol. More than 671,000 people braved freezing temperatures to attend the 118th annual National Western Stock Show in Denver. The event brought crowds from across the Rocky Mountains and featured events like mutton busting, a Mexican rodeo, and bull riding. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, KGNU's Benita Lee has more. It's a bit of a maze here, and I see a bunch of displays. Trade show, National Western Nursery, walkway to rodeo and the event center. For Lauren at the gate, Lauren is next. Amanda, two, happy three, Sarah, four. Hi, my name's Ryan Hall. I'm here at the National Western Stock Show competing in the meters on a horse daiquiri for Alexia Honinger. She owns him, and she's also our head trainer over at Millbrook Equestrian. I'm competing in the low amateur jumpers. We did a power and speed class, so half the class is just based on cleanliness and the other half is based off speed and time. My name is Gretel DeMartin and I'm from Boulder, Colorado. My horse's name is Emiliano, but his show name is Milan. Since this is my second year here, I kind of know how things work, but last year I was a little nervous because it's like People from all over, like kids from, come for like school field trips and everything, so it can get a little nerve-wracking when all these people are watching. But, but yeah, I wasn't so nervous this year. So some people are here from like 4:30 until like 10 every night, just taking care of the horses. It's a lot of work, but it's it's worth it. My name is Neil Miller. I'm the show farrier. Sure, I put shoes on horses. I'm here to repair anything that's broke. My apprentice, Brendan Sheridan, man. I'm on my first year on my own this year, so. I'm pretty excited for that. What kinds of things are exciting to do as a farrier? Uh, so taking, really taking a horse that's crippled or lame and making them into like the best performance horse out there is really cool. And watching the progression of horses as they get older, as they train more. So that's the best thing. I get to work with horses every single day. So, Do you help them by like giving them a different kind of shoe? So depends if their ankles are wrong. So there's a lot of things that can happen, but then we're here to fix it. So. So it's kind of like tires when you get to rotate tires yep. or change tires. It's exactly like changing tires every eight weeks. Yep. <laughs> In the Hall of Education, see a beautiful white cow being 
groomed very carefully. My name is Sydney Allard. I am showing my heifer here, my purebred Charlie heifer. So we're clipping her right now to trim her hair and shape her hair the way we would like. So we just want them smooth and correct in their structure. So we just try to shape their hair to accentuate their good parts and kind of hide their bad parts. My name is Melissa Mosman. I'm a co-owner of J&M Show Goats. We're in Greeley, Colorado. We have boar goats. And those are meat goats? Correct, yes, meat goats. What does one look for and what they look like? Um, honestly, since it's a meat goat, they're looking for cuts of meat. So the loin across their back is their, their top rack. And so they're looking for a good wide one of those with lots of meat on it. They're looking for some good chunk in their butt. Um, they're looking for good musculature. Is that one of your goats? Yes. That, and it's so pretty. Do they look at all at what the coat looks like? No, not at all. In fact, some of the colored ones are harder to judge just because it's not as easy to see all the muscling and stuff on them. Are more people eating meat from goats? Not in the United States as much. Um, a lot of ethnic groups really love goat meat. It's the number one meat in the world, actually. It's very low in fat, high in protein, low in cholesterol, so it's really great for you. My name is Wade Leachman. I'm the uh, herdsman at Rosebud Cattle Company, and we have um, Apex, the um, Angus bull, on display. He's a very good-looking dude. What makes a cow good looking? I would say uh, the biggest thing is structure, how good they're good they're moving and how good their feet shape is, especially right now in the Angus world, and just soft, good bodied, and uh, they look like a good cow that's going to look good on grass. It's getting close to lunch. Hi, my name is Roger Sharp, and I'm the uh, owner of Big Bubba's Bad Barbecue out here at the Livestock Show in Denver, Colorado. During the stock show, we go through about 600 cases of turkey legs, about uh, 4,000 pounds of pork, and about 250 cases of pork ribs. Hi, my name's David. Um, we brought our son, Nolan. He's six and a half for the first time. The baby llama, the baby goat. It was cute. My name's Brody Erie. I'm uh, from Stephenville, Texas. I'm a professional bull rider. I grew up kind of in the western way of life, and my dad rode bulls, my grandpa rode bulls, so it really wasn't that hard to get into it. The challenges, obviously, the physical challenges is trying to stay on a bull, you know, that obviously weighs more and is stronger. And as I've grown older, I think the more of the challenges were me as being away from home, being away from my wife and my family and everything like that, that's more of a challenge now than the actual bull riding. In the home. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly cloudy skies tonight with a low in the mid-teens. Thursday, expect snow beginning midday with a high near 30 degrees. Snow is forecasted to continue overnight on Thursday when the low is near 20 degrees. Expect total accumulation of 4 to 7 inches. Friday brings partly sunny skies with a high near 25 degrees and a 50% chance of snow showers. Friday night, expect partial clouds with a low around 10. This has been the news for Wednesday, January 24th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, 
Call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hey, this is Mary from the Telluride Historical Museum with your Miner's Minute for January 24th, 2024. If you haven't made it up the hill yet this winter season, come check out our current exhibit, Festival Capital of the Rockies, 50 Years of Festivals in Telluride. This fabulous exhibit takes you through 50 years of festival history here in our canyon. Which festival was the first, do you think? Was it Bluegrass, Film Festival? Well, come discover the answer and more in the Weatherford Gallery. This exhibit will be open until we close for the off-season in April, so make sure you don't miss out. We're bringing you a Way Back Wednesday today. In this segment, we'll read you a piece of Way Back history. This week's bit is coming to you from our very own Telluride Tales, Volume 1, in an article written by Rowdy Rautabush about the Narrow-Minded Country Club. As we were into our third beers, Flatten observed that, among the great things about Colorado, one was that all you had to do to keep beer cold was put it in the shade. He looked at me and said, you can't get any higher than this. I sometimes think I spent the next 20 years trying to get back on that roller coaster ride that is Telluride. Flatten pulled horseshoes out of the woodshed and we stepped off the 40 feet between pins and began what was to become the NMCC's main sporting event. After a couple games, thirst drove us to the Sheridan, where we regaled everyone with the joys of our early morning exercise program. Bartending, Jim Gus Guest, seeded the idea for the club's name. He said, you guys think you're narrow-minded? As he pointed to a picture on the wall of gold-struck Pandora miners. How'd you like to be as narrow-minded as those guys? So that excerpt does come from our very first edition of Telluride Tales, Volume 1, that you can find up at the Telluride Historical Museum. And if you want to hear more about the story and the less PG version, make sure you talk to Rowdy Rowdabush to get the full scoop. A reminder of our hours, we are open for the winter season, Tuesday through Saturday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And remember, Saturdays are always free for locals. Be sure to check out our gift shop with some items that we do have on sale currently. We've got brand new inventory with gems, toys, games, and vintage-inspired jewelry and accessories. If you have any additional questions, feel free to call the museum at 970-728-3344 or email info at telluridemuseum.org. We look forward to hearing from you. We hope to see you up on the hill on First Street soon or follow us on social media to keep in touch with what's up up at the museum. Thanks, Koto. You're a rare medium. Well done. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You're also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Koto. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.